this conversation about gender fluidity and diversity is not about erasing gender. Gender is a beautiful thing. The problem is that we in our world today are not celebrated in making choices about our gender. Keyword being choice, Mm -hmm. not that you can choose who you are or your gender identity, but this choice of how do I want to engage with my gender? I'm Alexa, and you're listening to That Sex Check, a Soulfire production. Ray McDaniel is a non-binary sex therapist turned coach who works with transgender, non-binary, and questioning folks feeling lost while transitioning their gender identity. They are the creator of Genderfuck, spelled without the U, which is a club, a one-of-a-kind research-based online group coaching community for transgender, non-binary questioning folks who are on a mission to transition with less suffering and more ease. Ray is also the founder of Practical Audacity, a gender and sex therapy practice in Chicago, and also provides training for medical and mental health professionals wishing to uplevel their knowledge in trans-affirming care. In this episode, we talk about what it means to be cisgender, gender non-binary, and trans, as well as the differences between gender and sexuality or sexual expression. We dig into aggression and frustration between cis people and non-binary or trans people and how all of us can do better. We talk personal and sexual development and how all people can look at life and gender with openness, curiosity, and play. Ray and I also talk about confusing language, like using the term they for a singular person, as well as the birthright permission to grow, evolve, and change your mind. Y'all, this is a combo unlike any other we've had on the show. My desire is for all of you to listen with an open heart and an open mind and to have an intention ahead of time that on the other side of hearing this show, you'll have access to more acceptance and love in your life. Admittedly, I am challenged by this subject. As I approach becoming a mom, I'm looking at how I feel about sexuality and gender expression with a whole new lens. What I know for sure is that no matter what, I want access to more compassion and more empathy for my future kids and what they may or may not decide is best for themselves, as well as more compassion and empathy for those who already surround me in my day-to-day life. I personally love being challenged in this way, and I hope that those of you who listen to the show do as well. Enjoy. Ray, thank you so much for coming on to that sex chick. Um, I was just telling you right before I hit record that my entire team and I are stoked to have this conversation because it is is something so unique. And I think even before we have the conversation, refreshing and something that my audience hasn't been exposed to, certainly from our perspective. And it's been on the list. And so first and foremost, thank you for bringing something new and fresh and riveting and exciting, certainly to us, um, onto that sex check. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here and dive into this juicy conversation. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know if you remember this. I imagine you remember this, that Dominic Cortuccio, who's been, I'm pretty sure he was how I found you or we got connected or something like that. And I okay. can't remember like the initial points of contact, but he was like, you have to have this conversation you know, that you'd been on, on, um, their show. And so anyway, he's one of my really good friends was at the wedding. And so, um, anytime he says like, check this out and like, Oh, you got it. No questions asked. 
<laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, so I would love if you could go into a little bit of the story of you and you don't have to go too far into it, but just really the highlight reel so that our listeners can get a good picture of who you are and what you're about to bring to the table. Yeah. So my early life was, well, my whole life, I suppose, has been a bit of a wild ride. So I grew up as the adopted child of fundamentalist evangelical puppeteer missionaries, which is quite the sentence. So I grew up traveling around the U.S. doing um, ministry work. And at the time, as I was growing up, because I was in this very small bubble and very isolated, I wasn't really aware of my own identity as a queer person, as a non-binary person, but I did always kind of recognize that there was something different about me. I just wasn't able to put my finger on it until I left for, for college and then grad school. So I went to undergrad to study ministry very quickly, uh, figured out that not only did I not want to do ministry, but I really moved away from religion completely, fell in love with psychology. I also found my community and my place with the, the theater kids. And as you can imagine, the theater kids were pretty much the only out gay kids on campus or as out as you could be in that environment. And I watched them go through coming out, figuring out their identities in a very oppressive environment. And so that paired with my love of psychology is why I went to grad school specifically to work with the LGBTQ community in therapy. Went to grad school in Chicago, pretty much immediately flung open the, the closet doors, came out as queer within a few months of getting to Chicago, which was very anticlimactic to all of my college friends who all thought that I was already out. <laughs> and then decided that I wanted to also pursue sex therapy. And so I developed a specialization in working with the LGBTQ community, in particular, working with trans and non-binary folks and became a certified sex therapist. And then over the past probably four to five years, I also came out as non-binary. I started going by a different name and pronouns. I use they, them pronouns and recently got top surgery uh, about a, a year ago, actually, which is wild. Mm. And that concludes the very quick synopsis of the story of you. Yeah. <laughs> and then where I'm at now is that I run a group therapy practice called Practical Audacity that focuses on the queer community pretty much exclusively. There's about 16 therapists that work for me in Chicago. We serve about four to 500 clients a year, which feels really special to me. And then I also have a group coaching program called Genderfuck, that's gender FCK, because we're polite, that helps trans and non-binary folks transition their gender with more ease, curiosity, and joy. And then I also do a lot of work like this, where I educate folks in a lot of different industries on trans-affirming care, trans-affirming environments, and language. So good. So I imagine that, well, certainly... Well, I imagine that a lot of the people who listen to our show, and I say our show because it's definitely a team affair here. Um, every person on the team has some role in the production of our show. And so 
I imagine that it's people listen to us and follow us because we are like them. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, for me, I am married to a man. We have a very heteronormative type relationship. Um, Of course we have, we we consider ourselves to be monogamish. And so we like to Uh play with others in certain circumstances and very fun. And I, uh, find my sexuality at times to be somewhat fluid. I love engaging with all types of bodies and people and all of that. And so, um, Jordan is a little bit different. I'm, I'm steadily opening his mind a little bit (laughs) at a time and also helping, I would say at times to really shame and dogma. And cause he also, when you said the evangelical, all that, his grandparents are pastors of a they were uh, pastors of a charismatic evangelical church, like slaying the spirit and all, it was called powerhouse anyway. Um, and so like, you know, little bits at a time of just like pleasure is pleasure and love is love and all those things. And even still as, as I am as open as I am, I find myself very challenged because my upbringing was Catholic. And, mm-hmm. and so challenges with like, am I supposed to do this? And, you know, for a long time, I was like, I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to do the kid thing. I'm not going to want to do anything that is outside of the box that they tried to put me in. Uh-huh. Um, and so I imagine that we have a lot of listeners that resonate with my story. I imagine that we have a lot of listeners that resonate with Bryn's story, which is post divorce before having children and all that. And then we have Serena on the team who's very witchy, very spiritual, very fluid. She just got married as well. And so I would imagine that we have people who are very curious and probably if I had to guess, associate more with the heteronormative, uh, narrative of like, this is what Mm -hmm. I believe I'm supposed to do, but still have this curiosity. And I also would imagine that people in our audience feel at times challenged by this conversation because there is a lack of understanding and it feels like big and like they don't want to fuck up, but they also want to like be loving and kind and empathetic. And something that I, I, I heard recently, and I can't remember, um, was a transgender poet, very, has a really big Instagram account. It's really awesome. And I can't remember their name. Um, but the, the topic on the most recent podcast that I was listening to was compassion doesn't require understanding. And so mm. I don't need to understand yeah. you to love you and to say you have value in the world and in my life and, and you deserve to exist. And however you would like to be treated because I love you and I care about you, even if I don't understand it, I can provide that to you, not out of obligation or fear of cancellation or, you know, whatever the reason. And I'm not going to do it begrudgingly or in this particular kind of way, but like, I don't, I don't need to have that. And I think that compassion then can at times showing up from that place flow in both directions. Like, Hey, I'm going to fuck up. Like, I'm going to try to deliver you what you, I think that you want and you're saying that you want, but I'm probably going to fuck this up because like my brain is working in a, in a way that I'm sure, you know, compassion can, can be granted all around. And so I think paint that picture of like the types of people that you are speaking to. And I am included. Like there are times I'm like, I don't know if I fully understand that. And also I love you. (laughs) So, um, I would love to double click on a few things that you said in delivering your story that I think would help on some level to understand at times, or even just go, Oh, I get that. I am not fully there yet, but I think I, I'm on my way to getting it. So non-binary. Let's Uh just start there. (laughs) That's a great place to start. Um, So to give you the whole spiel a little bit. So when you are born, the doctor generally says it's a boy or it's a girl. And if you grow up and you're like, yep, 
that feels like it, it fits to me. I feel very solid in that identity. Then you are cisgender. That's C-I-S. It's a Latin prefix. It means on the same side as. So on the same side as the sex that you were assigned at birth. Trans, on the other hand, is a Latin prefix that means on the other side. So let's say you were born, the doctor says it's a girl and you grow up and you say, nope, woman doesn't feel right. Man is actually the identity that feels right to me. Then you are a transgender man. So what non-binary means, and I'll use myself as an example, is that I was born, the doctor said, it's a girl. And I grew up and that largely felt fine. And eventually I started realizing the metaphor I like to use is it felt like I was wearing a shoe that was a size too small, where it was kind of fine and I could walk around in it. But after a while, it starts feeling really confining. You start getting blisters, your feet start to, to swell and it's no longer comfortable. And that's how I really felt about my gender is that the label of woman felt like it was too confining and too small. But I also know that I don't identify as a man. So non-binary means that I identify solidly in the middle of a gender spectrum. And that is where I feel the most comfortable in my gender. Mm. I love that. And I'm curious, and of course, you know, I would like to ask you a personal question if it's yeah. all right. And of course you can say Absolutely. no, thanks. Um, so you said that you had top surgery about a year mm -hmm. ago. And so for those that are like, what's top surgery would love for you to answer that. And then also if you find yourself in the middle, what went into the decision of I'm going to get top surgery, even though we're in the middle, so to speak. Yeah. Great questions all the way around. So for those who don't know what top surgery is in in my case, it was a, a double mastectomy is the easiest way to, to put that. Um, and yes, so non-binary people, some folks who identify as non-binary choose to go through a medical transition of any kind, right? There's a lot of different ways that that can look. And some people don't. For me, I sat with the decision to get top surgery for a really long time. I probably was having conversations about it and thinking about it for four to five years before I decided to, to make the leap. And eventually, probably about a, a year and a half ago now, I realized that the only reason I wasn't getting top surgery is because I had always had breast and they were comfortable. But I was consistently binding. So I was wearing a um, basically a vest that really flattened my chest or I was wearing really tight sports bras. I didn't really experience any sort of sexual pleasure with my breasts. They were always just kind of there. And I just decided that it was time for a change and it wasn't a good enough reason to not have surgery simply because I had always had this chest tissue. And so I, I did, made the decision really quickly with all of, it's kind of an iceberg situation where it probably looked really quick on the surface, but I had been thinking about it for years. And honestly, I've never been happier. Like I feel so much more comfortable in my body. I, it's so much easier you know, just throwing on a shirt with no bra. Why didn't people tell me this earlier? Um, and it just makes me 
feel like I can sink into my skin a little bit more where my body matches this internal sense of who I am. And I think ironically too, this was something I didn't expect. I think sometimes there is a pressure for non-binary folks who lean on more of the trans masculine side, which I, I do, to have this show of masculinity. And I never really bought into that cognitively. But what having top surgery did for me is it, it gave me this sort of permission to also tap into this feminine side of myself. And I feel more comfortable being authentic in that way now that my body matches a little bit more of how I envision it. Mm. That's great. And I know the only way that I can like, I would say resonate and, and associate with your story because who I am and how I be is very different is as you're speaking, I went, oh, I felt very similarly when I started sleeving my arm my mm -hmm. with tattoos, which is also a permanent decision. You know, it isn't directly yep. associated necessarily with my sexuality or my gender or anything like that. But as soon as I started, like I heard the gun go to my arm and I was like, oh, I, there's no turning back. This is a permanent, this is a permanent <laughs> thing, <laughs> you know? And of course my mom, my very Southern Louisiana mom, oh no, you can never wear a nice dress again. It was the first thing she said. <laughs> you can never, I'm never allowed to wear a dress again. No, that's not the case. Uh, but, but yeah, that, that was certainly the way that I felt. And I saw my, the first time of, of that showing up, I'm like, oh, my insides now feel like my outsides. And so it's as, as close as I can get to really like understanding maybe some of what you are uh, feeling through that process. And I, I love that you brought that up on a couple different levels. First of all, my parents are also from Louisiana and I grew <laughs> up there. And when I got my first visible tattoo, they told me I'd never get a job. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, <laughs> obviously on the list. I'm, I'm doomed. Uh, so I resonate with that. But I also love that you brought up permanent body changes that are not related to gender because most people, maybe not your mom, but most people, when you get a tattoo sleeve, they're like, oh, cool. Right. That's fun. Even though it is a permanent decision, but something about gender, people tend to freak out a little bit about it, about making permanent changes to your body. And there is a different weight to it. And I really want to challenge that and question that and view gender exploration and transition, whatever that means for your body, as a place of self-growth and moving towards authenticity. And it doesn't have to be so pressured and such a big deal, just like getting a permanent change on your body like a tattoo. Mm, for sure. Um, because, yes, I, I can't remove my skin on my arm anymore. Like, well, yeah. Not anymore. I could never. It's going to say you have a skill that I don't have. Uh, no, that's not going to happen. But uh, but yeah, I, I certainly went through the like, what is it going to mean if I want to become a mom, if I change my mind and I want to become a mom one day, which is now a conversation that I'm having pretty regularly. And speaking of becoming a mom, I, I think about in this conversation and, and this is a conversation that I have with Jordan every so often, it's we're going to have at least two children is, is the idea. You know, we, mm -hmm. we're not sure like what fertility or any of that means for us because we haven't started the process or anything like that yet. So just considering where we are now, we want at least two children. And then the conversation goes like, how will we raise them? And how will this, you know, and like all these metaphors and theor you know, 
being very theoretical and all of that. And so, um, you know, what if dot, 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 what if we have children that, you know, we have assigned a little boy at birth and we are giving him all these boy things. And then all of a sudden, you know, he would rather play with all the sister's things and just mm-hmm. wants to only be in that. And like, how do we encourage like, where do we find our place as a potential parent? Like, these are conversations that we are having, especially since the current global unfolding of like this. There's lots of different types of people and orientations and and just all of that. And so it's like, how do we find our place in in parenting when our upbringing was so different? So I'm curious if you like to speak on that. Sure. So I think the first thing that I would say is this conversation about gender fluidity and diversity is not about erasing gender. So I'm not trying to say that we need to all be burlap sacks of genderless humans. Gender is a beautiful thing. The problem is that we in our world today are not celebrated in making choices about our gender. Keyword being choice, not that you can choose who you are or your gender identity, but this choice of how do I want to engage with my gender? And what that means when it comes to kids is you mentioned, you know, we've bought our assigned male at birth child, all these boy things. I think my question would be, what are boy things? Yeah. How are we categorizing boy things versus girl things? And how do we expand our definitions of that? How do we question our assumptions of, you know, we think of the very stereotypical boys like playing with trucks and girls like playing with Barbies. So maybe that looks like when you're in a a toy store or a toy aisle, letting them walk down all the aisles and be curious about all the toys and see what they are naturally drawn to. Um, If you have a a child who is assigned male at birth, you know, my, my friend just had a baby and I love her answer when people ask like, Oh, is, do you have a boy or a girl is, Oh, we have a boy for now (laughs) until, unless they tell us otherwise. Um, So it's really about bringing in celebrating exploration of gender critically questioning what are boy things, what are girl things, and how can we encourage our children to engage with gender in an intentional way? Another example, I I have a friend who has a, a couple kids and they use a lot of genderless language, right? Child instead of son or daughter. And one of their kids asks like, oh, um, am I um, am I a daughter or am I a son? And the parent just asked them back, like, hey, this is what people typically mean when they say daughter. This is what people typically mean when they say son. Which one feels right to you? And just having conversations that are a little bit more open, I think, goes a long way. Another thing I think goes a long way is having access to gender diversity and what the child is exposed to. So with media, with books, even at an early age, reading them books that are a little bit more gender inclusive so that they are able to make those decisions for themselves instead of just assuming that because they were put into a certain box when they were born, that it means X, Y, Z. Yeah. And I I think that 
some people might hear that and go, well, maybe if I, if I lay out all these options and these other things, then I might sway my kid to do one of these other things, which mm. is an interesting thing to consider. Cause it's like, well, if you could deliver it and then they choose it, then it's probably that's right for them. Maybe in theory, or maybe they want to try it on for a second and see how it feels because this is all an exploration. And yeah, you know, a, a yeah, I mean, I consider myself a project I'm working on perpetually, you know, um, at times I feel like the project's got all the tools it needs. And at times I'm like, I'm falling the fuck apart. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit curious about, you know, when people, cause I imagine that you hear some of this where the people are like, well, oh, yeah, yeah, but then what do you do? Like you show your kid all these things and they decide I want to be a purple plant or whatever. And it's like, well, that's not uh -huh. one of the options, but it could be. <laughs> you know? Yeah. How do you do that I, in a way that's like uh, a try, like the age appropriate in a sense? Yeah. Well, I think my question back would be for parents when you were exposed and I should say uh, heterosexual parents, when you were exposed to the LGBTQ community, when you learned that there were other options besides heterosexuality, did that turn you gay? Because usually if you're not gay, it, it doesn't. Uh, so when we're talking about exposing children to ideas about gender, if you have a cisgender child, they're not going to turn out as trans because you read them a book about gender diversity. Right. If they come out as trans or non-binary later, it's because they're trans or non-binary. Yeah. I mean, I hear it. And I think, I think like how I started pretty much the, the show in the conversation of like, I don't need to have understanding in order to have compassion and empathy for your experience and respect you mm -hmm. and, and all of that. And I think providing more of that information and, and information to young minds that don't see things in this very logical perspective um, at times, you know, and as, as adults oftentimes do, or like this has to be black or white or fit in this box or in that box or whatever. Like I see kids and they're all over the dang place. So, mm -hmm. you know, here's, here's how to love basically. And so if this piece of information is delivered, then they can make decisions, like you said, choices for themselves. And if they do identify cis gender, if they, whatever they're assigned at birth and they're like, yeah, I, I want that. Everything fits for me. But they've also been introduced to all these other concepts. Then I believe that then that little person has more space for that understanding or more space for that love and for it to come from an authentic place um, for them to be, um, in my opinion, I mean, I'm just foreshadowing in a sense, like more well-rounded. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think being able to explore gender is something that is helpful for kids who are cisgender as well, right? Exposing children to gender diversity, critically questioning what does it mean to be a boy or a girl allows, say, a, a cisgender boy to say, hey, maybe I'm not interested in football. Maybe I'm interested in ballet. And it opens up that possibility. Or saying, maybe I'm interested in both and I want to do football and ballet. And it yeah. opens up that possibility as well. Right. And then, then it kind of breaks the Southern Louisiana. Well, I'm not going to pick on Southern Louisiana <laughs> folks. Breaks their brain. But ballet means gay. And no, no, it just means I like ballet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just think about growing up because we, we actually, when I was in high school, there was a member of the football team that did practice. And he was like a defensive lineman and was also a ballet dancer. And I remember at one point 
um, him bringing the flag onto the, you know, into the middle of the thing and like doing like a pirouette and like a split or something. And this is like a big dude and still very much. And, and I haven't checked in on this person in a really long time, several years or, um, older than I am. Um, but I imagine like married with a family and it's like this, liking this thing didn't mean, or being classically trained even in this subject matter, didn't mean that I'm less of a man and I can bulldoze my way on a football field and, you know, have a family and all that. So exactly. I dig it. I dig this conversation. So I would love to shift it a little bit into, okay, so let's say these kids grow up a little bit and they are in that place of questioning regardless of like how they grew up, so to speak. Well, not necessarily regardless because those things really factor into how they might be questioning, how they could feel about questioning. But I would, I would love some perspective on that. So I know some people, you know, depending on how they grew up, maybe it was open, maybe they were exposed to a lot of it. And so the questioning deal I don't want to assume that it's easier for them because maybe it isn't, um, again, depending on certain circumstances. And for some people, it just might be hard all along. And I think for some people that are not questioning and might not understand it fully, might assume that there's stress and anxiety and confusion happening all along the way. So I would love a little bit of your insight as to this place of I'm thinking about something different. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what is that potentially like for some people? And what might be present that maybe people who have zero understanding of transitioning or zero understanding of the, what that could be like for somebody, what else could it feel like? Such a great question. So a lot of my work, and I would say the core of my work is based on this question of how can we make gender exploration and transition a process that feels less like suffering, confusion, and self-doubt and more of a process of ease, curiosity, joy, and even pleasure. In our typical narrative, and I will say the narrative that we see in the media and kind of the narrative that is that shows up the most often is a narrative of gender transition that centers on suffering. And the typical narrative that we hear is a, a child grows up or a, a little child starts ex exhibiting gender nonconforming behavior, that gender nonconforming behavior is shamed by a primary caregiver. They shove it down. Usually around puberty, it pops up again and they experience a lot of anxiety and self-doubt, uh, potentially bullying, more shaming of that. And then whether they come out as trans or non-binary at that time when they're young or they repress it again and come out later, the gender transition process is seen as, well, this is going to be this horrible thing that is full of suffering and self-doubt. And then we get to post-transition, which you can't see me, but I'm, I'm using air quotes um, because I view transition as a constant process of self-growth. So I don't ever think that we arrive at our most authentic selves. We're just always working towards that. But anyway, we get to this quote unquote post-transition place where people are called very brave and they're they're looked up to, but they still might experience a lot of suffering, rejection, career issues, housing issues, et cetera. And that's not coming from nowhere. That is a story that is a lot of people's story. I have heard that many times from my clients, but it's not the only option. And I think the problem comes in when there is that one singular story of this is what gender exploration and transition has to look like and at its core is suffering. 
And so what I see when I'm working with clients is that we can have a process that is more full of of that ease and curiosity. And the core of that is viewing gender transition as a process of self-growth. And when we do that, it takes a lot of the pressure off of number one, arriving at a certain destination. It turns down the volume on anxiety and self-doubt when we can understand that this is just simply a process of growing and changing into more of who you are. Another piece of it is because gender transition centers on suffering and our, our typical cultural narrative, there's not as much emphasis on well, what are the strengths of of being trans? How can this be something that is good in your life? And how can we focus on the things that feel good? We call it gender euphoria versus gender dysphoria, which is distress about, about gender. How can we focus more on what we are moving towards, which is what feels good in our bodies and gender and less on what we are running away from. Y'all, I have a confession. I'm a bona fide biohacking broski. I want you to know ski. Mm-hmm. That's funny. What is biohacking? So biohacking is hacking the system of one's biology, the art and science of doing so to become the most badass, amazing, awesome version of myself. I hear the word optimization. Ah, there. yes. Yes. And mm-hmm. so as your partner as the partner to a biohacking broski, I've seen Jordan do so many different weird ass things Mm -hmm. from getting into water filled with ice and then jumping into a hot box and sweating it out (laughs) to sitting on the couch with a contraption on his head that shows different lights over his eyes and plays different binaural beats in his ears. (laughs) Um, I know everything from sunnier testicles outside and just all kinds of interesting things that help you hijack the system and be a better version of yourself. And there's one thing that every single freaking day I experience you do that is in the biohacking space. And that is spend no less than 40 minutes making your coffee every morning. Yeah. I biohack the shit ski out of my coffee. So, and I, this is the foundation really of my biohacking practice. I've been doing it for almost a decade now. And so my coffee's on steroids. I, it's my breakfast. I put all kinds of stuff in it. It's very calorically dense, all kinds of healthy fats, MCT oil, grass fed butter, uh, cacao powder, collagen protein, mushroom adaptogen extracts, turmeric, you name it. Mm. And when we first got together, I was also doing, I would say a version of that with my coffee. And I did it for a while. And I really enjoyed the way that my brain and my body felt. And then eventually, as many of y'all know, I've spoken about it on the shows that I've been dealing with some gut challenges and healing holistically. Um, I also have spoken about on the show that I struggle with anxiety, sometimes way more than others. And so as time has gone by, I've been trying to keep up with Jordan and his biohackiness and his (laughs) supercharged coffees in the morning. And we've just realized that that's probably not serving me at this stage in life. And, but the thing is, I love coffee, like love, love, love coffee. I love something warm in the morning. I love the feeling. And, um, I, dare I say I have anxiety about my coffee and then I wind up having more anxiety if I don't have it. And then I have even more anxiety if I do have it. And so my questions to myself are like, how do I support my gut, my brain, my body, and lessening stress and cortisol in my system, how can I still do that um, 
in a way that is healthy and supportive to me. So yeah. So we recently started using something called dose Mm -hmm. and it's a powder that has like a small amount of coffee in it. It's got lion's mane, chaga, collagen, uh, sun theanine, and just a bunch of stuff that does the things you just described. Exactly. And so you are putting a lot of those extracts in your coffee already, plus the fats and all of that. And so Mm. I've now found at Everyday Dose, their mushroom latte is a way for me to get a lot of those adaptogens and nootropics in the form of a warm drink that feels a lot like my morning Mm. coffee. Of course, it has a little bit of a different taste. It's kind of like light coffee with like a kind of chocolatey flavor to it. Mm -hmm. And I froth milk and I put it in there. And so that's what I'm having to support my system. That's a little bit different. So I can still be a biohacking babe, Come on, but not like a strung out (laughs) biohacking babe. (laughs) And Alternatively, on the flip side of this, Jordan, we have everyday dose and he adds that shit to his coffee. To everything I already do. So it's like I double down on it because I metabolize coffee really well. And a lot of people do and a lot of people don't. And so you and I really represent two very distinct populations of sorts. People that are sensitive to coffee and people that like do coffee very well. And so this works in both those scenarios. I'm a big fan. For sure. And I think a lot of people drink coffee regardless, because it's such a ritual in the morning totally. and it's very meditative every mm. morning. But I think that studies have shown that about half of the people that drink coffee are sensitive to it. Yeah. And mess with oh. their sleep, gut, um, anxiety, a lot of those things you're talking about. Absolutely. And we're starting to think that I might be in that category. So yeah. anything that we can do that supports me being in flow, being chill, all that. Um, and feeling like my best self, like I have access to my best self and I can regulate my nervous system. Then we're going to be doing that. And I know for Jordan, he's got limitless energy and he looks like a Greek God. (laughs) And so for him, he adds that shit and, and it works for him. So, um, we've recently partnered with everyday dose, Mm -hmm. which is super cool. And so for all of you who might want to give it a try everydaydose.com, the code that sex chick, you'll get 20% off of anything that you order. And, but they also have these really cool starter kits that have this like cool canister. Um, and it has like this cool spoon and a cool cup and the starter kits are already discounted. Add that sex chick on top of it and you get an extra discount. So you'd wind up with, I think, like 55% off of your first order. Um, And something else that I'll mention here is that this is a a mushroom elixir that doesn't taste like dirt. Yeah. I love it. It's so tasty. So, um, and of course there are recipes on their site where you can add other things to make them so, so much more flavorful um, and robust and, um, and unique to you. So again, everydaydose.com code Mm. that sex chick. If you want to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And last thing I'll say is the branding is cool. Just like the oh, company yeah. is cool. Dose it stands cool. for dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and the last one, endorphins. Endorphins. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Check them out, y'all. Give it a try. Couple things. I want to double click on there. Something that's come up, the conversation of gender versus sexuality. Because um, mm-hmm. you, you said a couple of things and I was like, oh, connect those dots. Because I think for some people, when they hear gender, they're not so they might get a little bit confused with was well, so who do you <laughs> in my head I went who do you bump parts with like who do you, <laughs> <laughs> like if you transition does it automatically mean that you know like if I'm a this kind of person and I transition in this way or maybe even I have surgery and then does that automatically mean I am now presenting as a gay man you know or like how ha- ha- so I, I would love a little bit of clarity there the difference between gender and sexuality and sexual orientation Yeah. People do tend to mush these things up and think of gender and sexuality as one thing. And they're 
they're interrelated, but they're very separate concepts. So gender is about how you feel about yourself, who you feel that you are. It's very internally focused. Whereas sexual orientation is about who you want to bump parts with, who you want to be romantic with. Um, And it's very outwardly focused towards the other person. I think another place that people get confused here are the labels, like you're describing. Well, if somebody was identifying as this gender identity, maybe the gender identity they were assigned at birth, um, and then they transition to a different one, what does it mean for their sexual orientation? And my simplest answer is that labels are only useful when we apply them to ourselves, including with sexual orientation. So we, there is no pressure to label a sexual orientation differently simply because you or your partner has transitioned into a different gender identity. I also like to point out that there are generally exceptions to our primary sexual orientation. So even you described that you can be fluid at times. And I don't know exactly how you identify your sexual orientation, but let's say, for example, that you identified it as I am heterosexual, I'm straight. And occasionally there are exceptions where I want to play with somebody who is not a cisgender man. And that's part of my sexuality. But the my primary way that I identify myself is heterosexual. That's perfectly okay. I also know lots of queer women or lesbian women who are in relationships with cisgender men because they happen to fall in love with them. And that's fine. There's no need to have a label that then limits who we can be attracted to and who we bump parts with. Your sexual orientation label is also where you feel like your primary interest is in other people, but it doesn't have to be so confining. Yeah. And I think it it, it also doesn't have to be set in stone. So like, oh my exactly. gosh, I know something about myself I didn't know yesterday or years ago or before. And so now I'm going to identify, or I'm going to use this label. Mm-hmm. I think at times there's this um, tension even between, let's just say the, the large population of cisgender folks. It's like, well, you can't change your mind. Now you're stuck there. Like you've just transitioned and now you choose this. And so now that, you know, like there's not this opportunity of like, this isn't, this is in flux. This is a process. This is ongoing. Mm-hmm. And it is also happening for the cisgender folks, just in a very different way, personal development, sexual development, et cetera. So, um, you know, like, I, I think like, you know, if, if someone were to meet a person, of course, this is all just like making up a story, meet someone and go, they say what their identity is. Well, it's like, well, then you're stuck there. You know, I think, I think about the people who, um, like when I first moved to Austin, there was a lot of polyamory is a big thing in Austin. Yep. And so it's a lot of people that are identifying as I am polyamorous versus mm-hmm. I'm living polyamorously right now. And there's a yeah. subtle shifts in the language that help it to feel, I think, for someone who's like maybe confronted by that idea or like, oh, you're so different than me, that that those kind of subtleties in the language, they they make a difference, I think. And so it's like, oh, well, I'm I'm living polyamorously now. And I might choose to live and go into a monogamous relationship in the future, but I'm going to shift the way that I communicate about it instead of saying like, I am though. I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, for people, and you can um, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but 
I think for people, when they are questioning, whether that's gender or sexuality or something like that, the identity initially helps them like, Oh, mm-hmm. I'm going to, now I have this thing and I'm going to try it on. And I'm going to say, I am this thing. I'm going to feel that in my body. I'm going to see what rearranges inside of myself as I say that. And, um, and I, I think about myself in, in a moment, there was a time in life where I would have said I am polyamorous because I had multiple mm-hmm. partners at the time and all of that. And I was very challenged by when I wanted to shift out of those relationships and date only one person at a time. Mm-hmm. And then I like, didn't know if I could do that. And I was like, what? I was public about this and I was open and I was helping people. Or there was a time when I was at, like, I would look back several years ago and read information or read stories that I'd written blogs that I'd written about empowering women who choose not to be moms, you know, specifically, because mm-hmm. that's who I was speaking to at the time. And now I'm considering doing that. I'm like, what does that mean about me? And that is like torture at times. And so I think a, a part of this whole conversation is like, people have permission to change. Like you have permission to change your mind, like go there and see what that feels like and then shift it if you'd like to, or go into the next evolution if you'd like to. And every single person I believe anyway, is doing the best that they fucking can. Yep. You know, on this journey. I just, I love how you put trying it on. Mm. And that's such a core piece is that we don't have to decide with a a capital D, like you're saying, we can give ourselves permission to grow and to change and to say, like you're saying, move in and out of a polyamorous identity or just structurally polyamorous. And that's okay. Yeah. And even in the gender conversation too, if you're exploring it for the first time, well, then you don't know. It's like, try it on and see how it feels. And if you put it on, you're like, oh, that's too tight. The shoe's too tight. (laughs) I'm getting, now I'm getting blistered by this thing. It's like you have permission to, to shift into what is the next evolution of you. Exactly. I think so. And I think uh, that again, funnels into the having compassion, empathy for all types of people, because everybody's doing the best that they can with the tools and the resources that they have accessible and available to them. So, and I know that's not a quote. So my production team, don't quote me on that. That's not mine. I just paraphrase it from somebody else, which I, and I'm not sure who was the original person who said that, but that, yeah, doing the best that you can with what you got. So I would love um, a little bit of your insight on, I have a couple things and these will probably be our last two topics that we like really dig into. And it's for people who are curious about exploring and maybe they, they have identified with what they were assigned at birth. So let's say cisgender, um, female and and did I say that correctly? Cisgender girl, female. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're like, Oh, maybe I want to try something else on let's say mid twenties, early thirties, something like that, like in that age range, where could they start? And like, what could it, what would it look like if they wanted to do this from an empowering place? And I actually am, am considering as I'm asking this question, I have someone in my life that is very curious right now about what, like how they show up in the world. And Mm -hmm. so what you're about to share with me, I will possibly pass that along. (laughs) Yeah. The first thing I would say is to develop an attitude of play and curiosity. So I call this spaghetti wall mode. You know, when you're cooking a pot of spaghetti, you pick up a, a noodle and you throw it at the wall. If it sticks, it's ready. If it doesn't stick, you're not a failure at cooking spaghetti. You just cook it a little bit longer. There is no failure there. 
And this is the same idea where we can experiment and play and get curious about our gender identity and how we want to express our gender identity from a place that is not so pressured. So if someone was interested in exploring their gender identity and expression for the first time, I would say sit down and maybe just do a little brainstorm of, well, these are ways that I'm curious about exploring gender, whether that is gender roles, right? I am curious about, for example, in the bedroom, we've been told that quote unquote, masculine folks are generally tops and feminine folks are are generally bottoms or submissive. And that's a really great place to play with some of those ideas about what would it mean if I took on a different role than what I was expected to take on. It's questioning, does the way that I present myself in the world, and that means typical things that we think about clothing, haircuts, et cetera, but also attitudes, values, how you hold your body, how you show up in a space, Be getting curious about is the way that I'm showing up the way that I feel the most authentic or are there things that I want to play with shifting in that? Um, are there experiments that you can run about well, I'm going to try on a new style of dress or I'm going to try on a new uh, way of expressing myself in public. Um, It could be trying on a new name and pronouns. And one of the quickest ways and easiest ways that I've seen people do that is starting small and starting with your core group of people that you know are already affirming of you. So before I started going by Ray more broadly, I told close friends that I wanted to go by Ray um, and kind of felt into how does it feel in my body when people call me by a different name? Same thing with my pronouns. I started asking people to use they, them pronouns in my close circles, and I just waited and kind of felt into does this feel right or or does it not without putting pressure on myself to, again, decide with a capital D. Mm. A really good place to start is what do you know for sure? So maybe you really don't know where your gender identity and expression is going, but you know, for example, that you really love wearing Uh, a band shirt and tight jeans. And that's a a really great place to start. Maybe you know that you enjoy dancing and dancing in a particular way. You know, we mentioned ballet earlier. That's a great place to start. You know that that one time that you wore that really wild thing to a party, that it felt good. You know for sure that when you showed up in a space, where you were exhibiting confidence and you felt really good and authentic, you know what that felt like and you know the factors that went into that and that's something to build on. So I always tell folks that it's about tiny, tiny steps. And if the next step feels too big and too scary, try step 0.5, just one step at a time. And then once you take that one step, you stop and assess. Does this feel good? 
Does this not feel good? If it feels good, you take another step. If it doesn't feel good, no big deal. You just go back to the drawing board and take a step in a different direction. Yeah, that that was uh, something for everyone. Yes. <laughs> what you just said is good for everyone. What are you, what do you, take stock of your life, your friendships, mm-hmm. the people around you, the activities that you, that you find yourself doing, the places that you find yourself participate, you know, experiences that you participate in, places that you go, that kind of thing. And is this real and right and true? And, or is it like, I'm just going through the motions? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And sometimes the, the answer might be, this is really right and true. Now, I was talking to somebody about this who is a, a cisgender woman. And through our conversations, she started questioning, well, am I really being my authentic self? Is my gender the, what I was assigned at birth? And her conclusion was, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it is. And it actually gave her permission to lean even further into femininity. And what she liked as a cisgender woman who was really feminine. Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly been a a question of mine. And it's not like, am I a woman or am I, do I associate with this? It's more like what type of woman. And for me, I very much resonate with uh, strong and bold and powerful and also sensitive. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when I get ready with, you know, I have my girlfriends, so to speak, they a lot of times are very flowy and dresses and different things like that. And I'm I'm in pants. And yep. so what does that mean about me? And, and you know, at, there were times where I'm like, what does it mean about me that I, I like to dress at times slightly more on if it's got a bit of an androgynous edge, um, mm-hmm. which I actually haven't said the word androgynous in a long time. Is that is that accurate? Is that a good word? Yes. I think it is a little bit of, there's some nuance there because often when people say androgynous, what they really mean is masculine, which is not technically androgynous, but I I hear what you're saying and it it makes sense. It's interesting because I would have maybe said that word at a different time and not gone, is that word accurate? Is it like what's underneath that? But you know, in this conversation, Mm -hmm. I definitely feel a bit more permission to go, is that the most accurate way to say that? But for me, what I'm describing is it's still feminine, but it has a little bit of a of a, it could go either way edge, mm-hmm. you know? So something like that, which I don't know if it's particularly accurate, but we'll roll with it. Like I just recently went out um, for a friend's bachelorette party and they were like, pants Alexa. And I was like, yeah, they're like, I could see that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm like, great. I um, love that. And so having friends that like celebrate whatever the expression is, however that looks, um, I think is important no matter what type of person or how you identify. Um, so I, I, I'm curious. This has been a thing that has broken my brain a couple of times. And that is the they in my mind is plural, but you are a singular individual. And so how can people who are doing their best at associating and communicating and being in relationship with someone who uses the pronouns they, them, theirs, Mm -hmm. some tips on either direction? Yes. First of all, I want to contextualize it in that they as a singular pronoun has been used since before the time of Shakespeare. So Shakespeare used they as a singular pronoun. We also generally use they as a singular pronoun and don't think anything of it. For example, you can say, hey, I ran into Sally at the store the other day and they said they were having a barbecue at their house on Saturday. 
that's using they as a singular pronoun. And it, it doesn't sound abnormal to us. But for some reason, when we start using they as a singular pronoun for an individual and trying to do that on purpose, our brains kind of break a little bit. Um, and there's a good reason for that. We have neural pathways in our brain, you know, what fires together, wires together. And we've learned that the only pronouns that we use are he or she. So a lot of it is less about wrapping your head around they as a singular pronoun and more about simply practice and developing those new neural pathways in your brain to get used to intentionally using they as a, a singular pronoun for people. And some tips of ways that that can look, and we're talking about neurons that fire together, wire together. If you can get your eyeballs used to seeing it and your mouth used to saying it, that is going to help a lot with those neurons wiring together. For example, if you have a friend who is going, who is using they, them pronouns and you're having trouble with it, do the fifth grade notebook thing where you write out their name and they, them next to their name 10 times in a row. That is going to help you associate it. Put it right next to their name in your phone so that every time they text you or you text them, it pops up. Start associating that person's name with their pronouns. Another thing is getting your mouth used to saying it. And you can do that by talking to other people about this person. You can do this by just talking about this person to yourself in your car or in front of a mirror. Um, yeah. It's just about getting used to it. And the good news is that we all have the ability to learn new language. Language is changing all the time. It's not that unusual. And in just grammar world in 2016, right, which is a long time ago now, which is kind of wild to say it, it was they as a singular pronoun was declared the word of the year. This is it's not new. It's just about getting used to a new thing. Yes. So my team and I got a lot of practice in discussing you coming on the show. Excellent. Because we got to like stop each other and correct. And, and, and it's like, it's, it's like a playful correction. It's like, oh yeah. oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. Now we're getting better at this. You know what I mean? And I find myself also wanting to use just the words, well, I'm from the South. So I give myself and other people from the South permission for y'all. I'm just kidding. I give everyone permission for y'all because it is super inclusive. And then if you yep. really want to be um, leveraging the Southernness, you can say all y'all and that's like <laughs> extra, extra inclusive. Um, but yeah, I, I find myself using words like people and folks sometimes, but I think people in general winds up coming out of my mouth more. Yeah. And I realize that in language, I, as I have grown in personal development and finding my way into what we do now, which is helping hundreds of thousands of people with their sex lives and, and just expressing mm -hmm. themselves better and feeling better inside of their bodies and, and feeling better about how they receive pleasure and, and whether their body is exactly what they want it to look like and feel like and be like in this moment, but still saying, yes, I deserve pleasure and figuring out who they want to love and all that. Um, and, and finding my way into that, I have worked really hard on removing the word should and could yes. and worked really hard on certain ifs 
and certain kind of negative language for my own benefit so that I can Mm -hmm. frame things in a more positive way. It doesn't mean that this bad stuff's not actually happening in my life, but the way that I have an outlook and can move through it shifts because of the language. And it's not just the language that I say out of my mouth. It's the language that I'm saying to myself in my head. And so I realize that like, oh, if I can shift some of these other words to make my life more positive, then I can also work on shifting some language with the people that are around me so that I can continue to have this positive interaction with all the people that I'm interacting with. Yep, exactly. Um, Yes. And I would love a little bit. So I have a little bit of a story that for some people that are identifying as either non-binary, they use they, them pronouns, or they have something that is different to the norm, Mm -hmm. that there's a little bit of aggression at times from one side to the neck to the other and vice versa back and forth. So I'm curious about how to navigate that. Um, because I know some, some people again, doing the best that they can. And so on either side, if it's, you know, I've been shamed and I've been ridiculed and I've lived this life and I do have some aggression on some level towards Mm -hmm. a large group of people for whatever the reason how to navigate that from a place of love. Um, because, well, if you get two sides that feel that way, then that's very challenging. Um, yes. But let's just say there, there's someone in the party that can recognize that that's happening. How can that be, how can there be a connection between people so that more love and understanding is maybe uh, developed in that instance versus more division? That is such a great question. And I, I think is a complicated question as well. So what I would say about that is, number one, authentic relationships make a really big difference. So for example, uh, this actually happened last night where I have a very close friend of mine. I'm very close with her family and her parents are, are really trying very hard with my pronouns and with language, being gender neutral, not using things like girls. Um, And, you know, I've been invited to their family holidays and I know that they care about me. And so last night I was at my friend's and the mom said something about you girls and then caught herself and then was texting my friend about, oh my gosh, I did this thing. But it, it didn't hit me in a super negative way because number one, she caught herself and started like correcting herself and feeling bad. And we have this existing relationship where I know they have exhibited care and love for me. And I know that they are really trying. So that doesn't land in the same way as someone that I don't have a relationship with using a gendered language or the wrong pronoun for me, and then not correcting themselves or not repairing from that. So those just authentic relationships, I think, will go a long way in folks developing this mutual compassion, because as you said earlier, it's not if you will fuck up, it is when, and that's okay. We're all learning. We're all growing. It's not going to be perfect. You mentioned aggression coming from both sides. So I'll first speak to maybe cisgender folks who are showing aggression towards trans folks. And this often comes up when people feel defensive about needing to learn a new thing. 
about needing to learn new language, needing to learn new pronouns. And what I will say about that is that discomfort is not harm. So for a cisgender person to have to learn something new and grow and change their language and put some effort into that, that may be uncomfortable to them, but it is not harming them in any way. However, we know from the high suicide rate, high uh, mental health concern rate, high health problem rate, high incidence of violence against transgender individuals, that not being affirmed in their identity is actually harmful and can be life-threatening. So I would say for folks who are trying to learn that are frustrated, just know that asking someone asking you to grow and change may be uncomfortable, but it's not harming you in any way. And there's no need to to be aggressive or to get defensive if someone corrects you about something. Um, it's just an opportunity to grow. And I'll also say this, this is a, a concept that I've learned from anti-racism work, is that when someone corrects you or or calls you in on something, it's because they care generally, because otherwise they probably wouldn't bother. And I, I see that in my own life too. Like I don't correct some of my doctors using the wrong pronouns because I don't have a relationship with them. I don't care about them. Yeah. Um, but I do correct people that I'm, I'm close to. Yeah. On the other, the flip side of that for trans folks, non-binary folks who are feeling defensive, aggressive, upset, or, you know, assist gender folks who's feeling aggression coming from a trans or non-binary person, I really want to ground us in the context of systemic oppression and microaggressions. It is a, a very large cognitive load to go through the world without privileges like being called your name, being called your right pronouns, having the right gender marker on your, your license, being able to go to bathrooms without thinking about it. Those are all things that trans people have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. There are a lot of systems from macro systems like transphobia and white supremacy down to these micro systems of internalizing negative messages that come from all these other systems that it creates, I, I like to call it death by a thousand cuts, right? And so when somebody is feeling frustrated or lashing out because somebody has made a mistake with names or pronouns or language, it's really not about the person who made the mistake. It's accumulation of trauma. And it's very understandable that after that accumulation of trauma, someone might lash out or be angry. That's a very legitimate emotion. And so I think grounding yourself in this isn't about me, um, that this person might be upset with me and focusing on repairing and rebuilding the relationship between you two is what I think builds that self-compassion and that room for people to make mistakes and then repair from it. Really, really important. Really important to understand that. I mean, on some level, however, a person can yeah. in hearing that like, and, and still there are, there are so many things that I will say 
I maybe don't get fully. Yeah. And I'm, I might not because I'm not walking in your shoes. I've got different ones on. And mm-hmm. that's okay. There's so many types of people around the world that I'm not going to be able to fully understand how they have formed into the creatures that they have formed or are a part of the cultures that they are a part of or all of that. And, um, but still I can choose to love and still I can choose for connection and all of that. And so what I, um, really hope through this conversation and introducing it to our listeners is that this is, this is unfolding and happening whether you want it to or not. And (laughs) (laughs) there, this is much bigger than you know, like this is, this is what is the current conversation, whether it's non-binary or trans or whatever, it's going to be something different in the next decade and something yep. different after that in the decade after that. And this is something that continues to happen. It just so happens that this is a bit of the, the focal point right now. And, and that it, it, this is the way that life and people unfold and you get to choose each individual gets to choose how much um, again, growth, compassion, love, empathy, all that, that they want to have in their lives. And I think on an individual level, you are choosing how much negative darkness. Um, and again, when I say these things, like, yes, you are choosing how much you see of that in the world. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm saying you don't have bad shit that's happening in your life. It's definitely perspective about it, um, as well. And so my my hope again is that this conversation can plant some seeds for people to be curious about themselves on an individual level and then about the people that they are interacting with. And so um, I think that we achieved that in this conversation. That again is my hope. So I think my my last question will be on a, again on a personal note is for you and going through this journey for yourself. What has really stepping forward and coming out as non-binary and and making the adjustments to your body, to your language, to your look, all of that. What has really deconstructing the traditional roles and stepping into more of who you are? What has that taught you in in maybe high level life in general? Um, And then specifically about sex and maybe even dating. Mm, Big question. So life in general, going back to my upbringing, I was taught that there is a certain way you quote unquote should be and that there is one option for how you show up in the world and what you do with your life even. And I think going through the process of coming out as queer, coming out as non-binary, making these choices about my body and how I want to express myself has helped me lean into authenticity in a different way. And one thing that I I teach my clients and that I say a lot is that this is a bit of a a snowball self-growth experience. So once you start experiencing authenticity in one area of your life and deconstructing the all of these shoulds that we've been told about ourselves, we are much less likely to accept less than that in other areas of our lives because we then know what it feels like to be authentic, to show up from a, a place where you are really just sinking into who you are. 
So there is a ripple effect on the rest of my life where I'm not willing to accept less than me just being me in the world. And when it comes to sex, I have been very fortunate in my transition in that I've never had very intense body dysphoria. I like my body the way that it is. I even I didn't hate my breast when I had breast. They just weren't doing anything for me. Um, so I have never really had a problem with sex or with kind of sinking into my body in that way in sex. But I think what transition has taught me in that realm is, again, going back to that authenticity piece, is that there isn't a certain way that I should show up in the bedroom or in sex or even in my relational orientation or in the things that I'm interested in, in terms of kink or BDSM, it just gives me space to really critically question and be curious and experiment with what do I like without it bringing all of this other gendered stuff into that question. It's just simply, what do I like? When it comes to dating, I've also been very fortunate in that I've dated people primarily, especially over the past, you know, six, seven years that are very affirming of me. Um, my partner now is non-binary. Um, so we, there is no pressure on either of our sides to show up in a certain way when it comes to romance, when it comes to roles in our relationship, when it, it comes to sex. And that I think is very freeing. Another place that the snowball comes in is that being authentic and feeling good in my body creates this dynamic where I'm not willing to accept a partner who also doesn't make me feel like that. So it, my standards are are higher there too. Yeah. And more authentic to you. Yeah, absolutely. So good. I love it. I love it. It was a great conversation, Ray. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, every time you speak, I'm like, oh, I want to ask her. See? Oh, I went the whole show. I went the whole show. <laughs> You're doing great. And <laughs> uh, what was the sentence? Oh, I want to ask them about this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing. And so, um, yeah, uh, still so much more to uncover. And then you had to throw in at the very end, like, oh, preferences in BDSM. I'm like, well, we haven't even talked about that. That's not on my list. <laughs> How does that work? Um, but I think this was a really well-rounded conversation for this go round. So um, I would love to leave an opportunity to have you on the show again in the future, possibly. Of course, if you enjoyed speaking to our people, um, I am definitely curious and would love to hear the feedback for those of you who are listening. What did you think about this conversation? What are you noodling on now? What came up for you? What's present for you right now? Is it curiosity and play? Is it frustration? Is it annoyance? Is it really, what is it? Because whatever it is, it's valid. Let's move through it, you know, um, and celebrate it in a sense, just the fact that you can recognize your sensations in your body and what you're feeling, you know, <laughs> you're already doing really well if you can uh, get that far. So yeah, I would love to hear some feedback on this episode. And if you'd like to have Ray come back onto the show and talk about some of the other things that you're curious about, I would love to, to invite them back on. So again, thanks, Ray. 
Thank you so much for having me. And I'd love to come back on. And I'd also love to hear what people are taking away from this episode. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you loved it, be sure to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And if you extra, extra loved it, make sure to leave a five-star review. I'll see y'all next week.